Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. He received an officer's commission at the age of 17. He wrote home often and in detail of his life in the 3rd New Jersey Volunteer Infantry Regiment. He anticipated his first battle with a mix of anxiety and naive eagerness. When it finally came his turn to see the elephant, he met the test with bravery and survived the hottest enemy fire, only to fall victim to a cruelly random death as the battle ended. We'll hear the story of Lieutenant Thomas J. Howell, from Professor James M. Scythes, author of This Will Make a Man of Me, The Life and Letters of a Teenage Officer in the Civil War, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath. Emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, a building accessible through three of its four stairways. The fourth one is under construction. Not the same one that was under construction last semester. They finished that one, and now they're working on another. But it's still noisy all the time, all day. And for that reason, as well as many others, I'm not speaking for East Carolina University or for anyone else, nor will my guest speak for anyone but himself. It's January 2020, a new decade. 
the second week of January, January 15th, the college football season is finally over. The national championship was held last Monday, or I assume it's over now. I'm not sure. I went to bed uh, before halftime, and there were so many commercials. Uh, it was late, and they were still in the second quarter. So I assume the game is over at this point on Wednesday. But uh, attention has moved on. Uh, now I'm focusing now on an unlikely team, our ECU Pirates basketball team, a team so bad last year that the coach got rid of 11 out of the 12 players, Uh, but the guys who got to replace them this year are doing all right, and and, uh, it's been exciting to watch. They're they're playing right now, so it's uh, entirely possible I've just jinxed them for uh, for tonight's game. We don't know. It's a new semester here on campus, uh, which is always fun. I'm uh, teaching the introductory uh, U.S. history survey, the second half of, of the survey, uh, which is always fun. The uh, first day of class, I was eagerly waiting for class to start, e- even though it's something I've done many times. There's always that, that rush as you get ready for the first day, first lecture. And the clock just seemed to be not moving at all and not moving at all. And finally, I noticed the clock was, in fact, not moving at all. The, the dead battery in the classroom clock uh, at the back of the auditorium, and my, my TA alerted me just in time, 30 seconds till 9.30. So today, between classes, I went downstairs and climbed up on the back row seats and took the clock down and found a battery in our department office and replaced it myself because that's the kind of hands-on instructor uh, that I've become here at ECU. I'm also teaching a uh, the, the Civil War course, which is uh, a delight as always. It, it's that that is just uh, fun to do. The, the students are mostly history majors, not just taking it because they need uh, social science credit. Uh, and one of the students this semester is a physician at Vidant uh, Health Center, ECU's teaching hospital for the Brody School of Medicine. And he uh, is a faculty member there who listens to this show and decided he'd, he'd come over and see Civil War Talk Radio in person and, and uh, sit in on our classes as an auditor. When he was in, we introduced ourselves on the first day of class, and when it turned out there was a real doctor in the room, the students, I can tell you, were quite impressed that someone thinks enough of the topic to take time out of their lives to sit in on a class that they don't have to. You don't have to listen or do any Civil War-related things, but uh, like me, here we are. We choose to do this, and there are other things you can choose to do. Uh, For example, the Civil War tours coming up in both May and October of 2020 with Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. Look for the tour called This Hallowed Ground. I'll be leading that one in May and again in October. Would be delighted to have you along uh, for those journeys. Civil War Institute is coming up in June of 2020 at the Gettysburg College. Definitely you want to look into that. If you do sign up for it, ask for the Civil War Talk Radio listener discount. And a third recommendation, one I'm not involved and I won't be part of, but just so interesting I want to share with you, uh, to put in a plug for the uh, Weeksville Society uh, go online to www.weeksvillesociety, all one word, .org, and learn about Weeksville. It was a antebellum free black community in Brooklyn that has, uh, from which several houses have survived somehow all the, the century and a half of development. Who knew that these 
antebellum homes are tucked away in Brooklyn, New York. If you're anywhere in the New York City area, uh, I strongly recommend looking up weeksvillesociety.org uh, and checking out the site. It's not open uh, every day. The, it's running on a shoestring, and if you can contribute to it, that would be great, too. So that's a completely unsolicited plug from what looks like an interesting place to visit. Other interesting things to do are listen to the shows in the weeks ahead. Next week, Douglas Waller will be our guest. He's the author of Lincoln's Spies, Their Secret War to Save a Nation. On the 29th of January, Christian Keller comes back to the show. His new book is The Great Partnership, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and the Fate of the Confederacy. And we'll start the month of February 2020 on February 5th with another returnee to the show. Uh, Megan Kate Nelson comes back. Her new book is The Three-Cornered War, The Union, the Confederacy, and Native Peoples, and the Fight for the West. As I said last week, it's getting a lot of attention. Uh, People I see online are talking about this book. I'm very much looking forward to reading it and talking with her. So that's coming up uh, in uh, the first week of February. You can find out about all these things, uh, as always, by going to Impediments of War, www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney tells us what's happening, who's coming up. He also maintains the Impediments of War Facebook page, which has the same information. You can follow along there. You can, while you're at the website, donate to the show by clicking the PayPal button and putting in the largest number you can think of. Uh, That money comes to me, and I use it sometimes to buy books for the show, sometimes to buy buy whatever, to buy anything, actually. Um, Money is fungible. Even if I said I'm using that money for this, it would mean less money for something else. Like the North Carolina State Education Lottery. What a great thing, a lottery for education. Uh, Now we can take money out of the education budget and replace it with lottery money. So people get addicted to gambling. Schools don't get any more money. It's it's a, 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 a con game all around, but so many states have it, and uh, so does North Carolina. So, yes, this is a con game also. Uh, if I take the money and give it, use it for one thing, it's just other money not used for the same thing. All of that is a way of saying if you want to support the show, you are uh, welcome to do so, and I am extremely grateful to all of you who do. Uh, whether through financial donations or just email saying who you'd like to hear on the show or that you're enjoying the show, it's always good to hear from listeners. It's also good to hear from guests, so let's get to our guest tonight. Professor James M. Sides is an assistant professor of history at Westchester University of Pennsylvania, and he is the author uh, and editor of the book, This Will Make a Man of Me, The Life and Letters of a Teenage Officer in the Civil War. Uh, Professor Sides, are you there? I'm here, Jerry. Welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. I listen to your show each week. I'm delighted to hear that. It was nice to uh, talk to you last summer at the Civil War Institute and uh, help us arrange to do this and for you to make me aware of your book, which I I very much enjoyed reading this past week. Um, And I used my my Civil War Talk Radio discount for this year's CWI. Excellent. So it it all it's all a big circle. It all comes around. We <laughs> we go to CWI. We meet new uh, fellows in the Civil War vineyard. Uh, 
talk to each other, find out who's writing books, get new ideas for books, get new ideas for shows like this one. And uh, uh, it's just, uh, that's such a great week. I just enjoy that every year, uh, talking to people and and meeting them and and also seeing the battlefield and the other historic (laughs) sites that we visit. It's, I can't recommend it enough. Uh, Well, first I'm going to say congratulations. It was really great. This was, this was actually the first year that I went there, or last uh, year was the first year that I went there, and um, uh, it's only two hours from our campus, so I've been to Gettysburg, I don't know how many times, a hundred times, but it was it was nice to, to finally attend the CWI. Yeah, but to be in that, that community of people who are interested in what we're interested in, and, and uh, just, you know, every conversation you have is interesting, it just, it, it's, it's, it's a great week. So, uh, first thing, uh, first things first, the, the back of your book says instructor of history, but you've been promoted to assistant professor. Congratulations. Thank you. That's yeah, a, when I, was, a, I was a long-term adjunct at Westchester, uh, a full-time adjunct, and then I mm-hmm. was converted to tenure track in 2013, and uh, I was promoted to um, assistant professor and got tenure in 2017. That that is a, a great thing. the The road to into academia for for history professors is a a difficult one. There's so much competition. So many people want yeah. to do this, and uh, uh, to hear a story of someone who makes it from the ranks of adjunct into the, the ranks of the tenured is is a is unfortunately not very common. So so really, uh, no, it's not. You, you deserve great congratulations for accomplishing that. So let me ask about this project. How did this? Yeah. Um, how how did you find it, or did it find you? These these letters. So I, I used to volunteer. I actually, I still am, am part of my local historical society, the, the Gloucester County Historical Society, where I live uh, here in New Jersey. Um, I'm presently the vice president of the historical society, but way back when I was just a volunteer at the society, and and I was talking to the librarian, um, Mrs. Holly, and, and looking for a new project to work on. I had just gotten out of grad school, I think maybe two years before that. And she said, oh, we have this entire collection of, of the Howell family. We have hundreds and hundreds of letters from the family from the 1740s until the 1870s. And I'm like, oh, that's great. Let me, I'll take a look at those. And she said, there's some Civil War things in there I think you might want to look at. So I looked through the boxes and boxes of letters and, and other documents, and I came across Tom's letters, this little letter book that his mom had put together of the 31 letters that uh, that she had gotten from him. Actually, 30 letters to her. One letter um, in the collection was to his sister, Annie. And I started reading the letters and and. Our society has the prayer book that I have a picture of in, in the book and his epaulets that he wore um, during the Civil War, um, which I actually have a, I also have a picture of in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started reading I started reading Tom's letters. I thought they were interesting, and I was really interested in the fact that he was only 17 years old. And, and as a student of the Civil War, I, I knew there weren't a lot of young officers in the Civil War, so... I was intrigued and, and wanted to learn more about him and, and thought, well, this might be able to, I might be able to turn this into a, a small article. So I started talking to Bobby Crick down at 
um, the Richmond Battlefields uh, at Gaines's Mill, and he and I were just emailing each other, and he emailed me one day um, and told me that someone had a bunch of Tom stuff on eBay. So I went on eBay, and I bought 34 more of his letters, transcribed copies of his letters. Um, so now that I had 65 letters uh, that he wrote to his mom and to his sister and, and to his brother, um, I decided to turn this into a much larger project. So the the fortuitous break that, that uh, eBay and, and other services like that uh, can provide, sometimes it takes things out of the public eye. We never see letters again that a collector buys, but other times... Yeah. As happened here, you're able to uh, become aware of them. You said these are transcriptions. So these, so half of these are not the original letters. Do you know where those originals are? No, I. There was something that the publisher wanted to know too, and and mm-hmm. one of the readers of the manuscript wanted to know where the originals were, and and I um I had contacted members or descendants of of Tom's family, and and um I wrote in the in the preface of the book, how I contacted uh, the person who I thought had the letters. When, when the letters were transcribed, I think they were transcribed probably in the, in the 1960s or in the early 70s by this uh, lady named uh, Sarah Draper, and she was a descendant of Tom's sister, Annie. And she's the one who actually donated the large Howell collection to our historical society. Um, and these transcriptions were sold at her estate sale when she passed away. Um, so at the end of the, at the end of the transcriptions, she mentions that she gave the originals to um, a member of the family. So I contacted one of their descendants or one of that that person's descendants, mm-hmm. and they didn't have they had they didn't have Tom's stuff. They had letters from someone else in the family, um, and at this point. Um, only the the guy's widow was was um, still alive, and she told me that she thinks that maybe um, she knew that a lot of the family stuff got thrown in the trash when her mother-in-law passed away, and she uh. said maybe those letters got tossed when her mother-in-law passed away. So no, that's <laughs> unless someone has them in their attic somewhere, I, I'd be really happy to see them. But actually, right after I published the book, mm. one of Tom's sister's descendants. Um, sent copies of the transcriptions that I had that she had in her uh, in, in her collection. So I knew that they came from the family. I know that you know they they're right. connected to the family. That does give some additional um, in, security in the, there. Uh, and as I explained in the book, you know the, the I'm, I'm going to step in. I need to step in and take a quick break here, and we'll come back and talk more about these letters. Um, Our guest tonight, James M. Sides, is the author of This Will Make a Man of Me, The Life and Letters of a Teenage Officer in the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have we got a high energy, all access sports show for you? 
It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access all the time streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com you are listening to civil war talk radio if you have a question or comment about our program please send an email to prokopovich g at ecu dot edu That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with James M. Sides, author of This Will Make a Man of Me, The Life and Letters of a Teenage Officer in the Civil War. We've been talking about the source of these letters coming from the Howell family and into a local historical society. Uh, Jim, once you had this collection of more than 60 letters and decided to, uh, uh, to, to write about it, the... How, how did you come up with the, the way to organize this? You, you present description and narrative of what's going on. Uh, then, then we get the text of uh, about half the letters, more narrative in the other half of the letters, uh, rather than annotating each letter uh, as, as it goes. Did, why, why that particular way to organize? I'm curious about that from a writer's point of view. I just thought it was a good way of, of putting everything in context. And, and I know sometimes when uh, someone reads a, a, a letter collection, sometimes you get a little overwhelmed or, or you don't, it takes a while for you to pick out the, the important little nuggets in each letter. So I thought that at the very least, if someone was going to read the books, they weren't going to read every letter in, my, in, in, in Tom's collection. I wanted them to at least have an appreciation of, of what he experienced and, and really how his attitudes change in, in just his short time in the war. And, and um, I thought there was a lot to say rather than just 
annotate the letters and and um um when I first contacted the publisher with how I wanted to organize the book I think there was a little pushback at first I think mm-hmm. they just wanted straight annotation of the letters and then I explained to them and gave them an early draft of of the book and it was a pretty rough draft of the book but um they got a sense of what I was doing and 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 um could see that I was a pretty good storyteller so um uh, I, I think that they they had an appreciation of of how I was going to present it um so I think it works um I I I I would like to see more um letter collections with some sort of 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 a much larger narrative um attached to the letter collection actually the, the new book I'm working on now this is it's what I'm trying to do with it um making a a, a narrative um putting all the letters in 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 context and and well, I think it does work here I think I enjoyed reading the uh, the narratives that tell what what Tom is doing and then when you read the letters themselves uh, you, you then get his voice directly uh, you know confirming these things one storytelling uh, uh, question that comes up is is the the spoiler alert moment do you yeah. do you tell the reader how it ends or not and and you've chosen to do so i'm, I'm listeners this isn't uh, no point in a spoiler alert because it's on the back cover of the book uh, in, in Howell's first battle, uh, he is killed in action. So we know even before opening the book how this is going to end. Did you, did you ever consider burying the ending so it becomes more of a even more of a tragic surprise? No, because I, I initially had talked to a publisher before I got in touch with Lehigh, and when I originally talked to him, I talked to him. I presented it to him. Um, I think it was through email um, that it was a story of a soldier from the Peninsula campaign, and and he emailed me back and said, "No one's really interested in the Peninsula campaign, so I I think I'm <clears> going <throat> to pass on it." And I'm like, "Okay, I, I need to explain more. I think in more detail why this only covers six months of the war, um, and and." I think that that at least then at least they had an understanding of why there was that cutoff at the Peninsula campaign, or early in the yeah. early in the seventies, right. early in the seventies battles. Um, well, first, so, uh, d- and I don't really think the whole story. I think the the story is more really about how he changes and his attitudes toward war changes more so than than the end result of him. Dying at Gaines's Mill, I think it's 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 this young kid who who has these romantic ideas of war, who's who comes from a family with a, a pretty rich tradition, and and he has a number of other relatives in the military at, at this point, and and I think he he believed that he was going to go off to war. It was going to be this fun thing. I think in one of the letters he says we're going to have gay times. You know, he's going to have a great time. And he's going to come home, you know, with all this glory, and then, and then it becomes a reality to him once they go to the peninsula that, or, you know, there's nothing glorious about it, and and, you know, it was pretty monotonous, and I think that 
that that was boring for him, and and I think a lot of the the the, the problems that he had with with uh, the lieutenant colonel and his regiment, I think, really bothered him, and and I think that that those romantic ideas really started to wear off uh, pretty pretty quickly. Well, this coming back to the start, the the, the number one question anyone even looking at the book would have, and certainly I had when I started reading it, uh, was how does this, this idealistic and somewhat naive, uh, but in other ways quite mature young man, uh, who is 17 years old, how does a 17-year-old get a lieutenant's commission? Uh, I mean, how, how many 17-year-olds were in the war to begin with? Uh, what, what? How rare is this? Yeah, that was, that was something that, as I mentioned earlier, it that's what really brought me to this this whole project to begin with was just how at least in my mind with with not a lot of data to back it up at that point that I don't ever remember reading in college uh, about a lot of young officers in the war so I so at this point it's I'm a couple years out of grad school and and I got on the computer, and I emailed James McPherson, and I told him <laughs> what I had found, and and I'm like, "Hey, how rare is this?" And he he was nice enough and got right back to me like in a day, and and said, yeah, "It's pretty rare to have an officer who's 17 years old getting a commission that early in the war, and not coming up through the ranks." So I'm like, "Hey, I think I'm onto something here." So um, I looked at the the book by Benjamin Gould, which has statistics from the Civil War, and, and Gould is looking at, I guess, about half of the Union soldiers in the war um, in his statistics, and um, out, of, out of, I think it's like 17, or no, actually, I think it was 37,000 officers in his study, um, only five in his study were 17 years old. Um, and only eleven were below the age of eighteen. So, I think if we if we extrapolate that number to include the you know the other million or so men who fought for the North, I think you probably have twenty five or thirty officers under the under the age of eighteen. Um, so only a handful of them would have been Tom's age. So it's a pretty rare it's a pretty rare occurrence. And and um, um, I, I think that that's what, as I mentioned, I think that's what really intrigued me and really brought me to the, um, really brought me to the topic. Well, I mean, it is certainly rare, and, and you give those statistics. You know, Gould's research is published in 1869. He's right there on top of the, the events that he's writing about. So, so you got this really unusual circumstance. So, what was it? How how did Howell swing this? Did he know a lot of people? Uh, yeah. So his family was was pretty well to do here in New Jersey and the Howe family uh, went all the way back to William Penn. Um, actually one of, one of Tom's um, relatives actually came over with Penn, helped Penn lay out Philadelphia and Penn actually gave him um, the land that the Howes end up um, settling on uh, here in, in South Jersey. Um, his mother's family, the Carpenter family, they were pretty wealthy. So um, his family was pretty connected. His his uncle, uh, I talk about quite a bit in the book, his uncle Thomas Preston Carpenter was on the New Jersey Supreme Court. And 
I think that through his uncle, Thomas Preston Carpenter, who by this point, by the, by the time the Civil War started, Tom's father, who was pretty popular, pretty well-to-do uh, lawyer in Camden, uh, Camden, New Jersey, where Tom lived, um, his father had passed away. So his uncle really, I think, stepped in and, and became sort of like dad for him. And, and he was studying law with his uncle. And I think he uses his uncle's political ties to to get this commission. Um, I explain a little bit in in the book. It's not exactly clear through, even though the family pretty much kept every piece of paper they ever wrote, it's not exactly clear exa- uh, how Tom got the commission. I, I offer sort of my take on how I think he got it. Either his uncle, uh, his uncle heard about it because his uncle would travel to Alexandria um, early in the war and visit the camps. So either his uncle had heard about it or maybe there was an, another officer uh, from the regiment who was on recruiting duty or he had friends in the regiment. Maybe one of them told him. However, he heard about it. Um, he travels to Alexandria in the middle of January 1862 um, with his uncle, and he meets with Colonel Taylor, uh, Colonel George Taylor, who's the Colonel of Third New Jersey, and and he stayed a couple days in the camp, and that's where he writes, "This will make a man of me," which that actually wasn't the original title of the book. Um, the original title was the book of the book was the last thing that he writes to his mom. I thought that. As, as a parent, I thought that that was pretty impactful. He writes to his mom, we are going to the front immediately, and the publisher didn't like the title. Um, and I, actually, in hindsight, I like the title. I like this will make a man of me, because I do really think that's sort of the essence of the book. Um, but he he says to his mom, I think this will make a man of me, uh, being in the Army, and, and he comes home, and he waits to get his commission, and, and the governor, or sorry, the the Colonel wrote a letter to the governor um, requesting that um, he be given a, a commission uh, as a second lieutenant in the third New Jersey. So, so he takes advantage of his knowledge of a vacancy at the regiment, makes these these connections, gets the appointment. Uh, I certainly agree that the title, I think, is is absolutely on point. This will make a man of me next to the photograph yeah. on the cover of the young 17-year-old uh, who by by the time he's in the field, he has grown a goatee, but not here in his early yeah. pose. He's uh, clean shaven. He's but but he is looking stern. Uh, he's very determined, uh, obviously, to do well. Uh, but he he brings a lot of his his uh, upper class baggage with him, and I mean that literally. Uh, yeah. uh, he's always writing home for more stuff. And uh, yeah. he's got a servant. Uh, I guess a lot of officers had uh, uh, men detailed. That was really uh, interesting uh, because servants. that I never knew going into mm-hmm. going into it that a lot of a lot of officers would pay uh, a private in the company to to basically be their be their servant. I, I, I'm wondering. We had a discussion uh, with Kevin Levin last semester on his his book mm-hmm. on Confederate. Uh, yeah. you know, black soldiers uh, who he points out yeah, they're not really soldiers; they're, they're servants, they're slaves, mm-hmm. uh, they're enslaved servants of, of the officers. Mm-hmm. And but many Union officers, or at least some Union officers, uh, certainly Thomas Howell, also have servants. Uh, they're free people; and they're paid for it. But it, it is interesting. You don't think of that normally as as something uh, 
that uh, that that would go on uh, in the ranks. He uh, he mentioned he boards at the Sutlers, um, so he he he's not eating hardtack and uh, salt pork no. every day apparently. No, no, and and the Sutler is is related to Colonel Taylor, so I think there's a little something going on there, and and. Um, I think that's why he doesn't have a lot of money to send home to mom. And, and you know, I explain in in the early part of the book his motives for going off to war. And ultimately, I think it's money that his family is a well-to-do family. But when his father died in 1859, his, his family didn't have a lot of money saved. And there were still three young, uh, actually four young kids, um, Joshua and Tom and Annie and Frank, that mom needed, uh, his mom Mary needed to pay uh, for their schooling. And, and she sold a lot of the family uh, silver to pay for their schooling. Tom had a private um, teacher in, in Philadelphia. Um, so when he goes off to war, um, I think that it's it's about being now the man who's going to take care of of his mom and 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 his younger his younger siblings because his brother at this point is studying law with his uncle. So as as an officer, he's making pretty decent money. But as you mentioned, he he's he's hanging out with the sutler quite a bit. So I think that he's spending a lot of money, and then and he makes friends with with Archibald Taylor, who is the the nephew of Colonel Taylor, who is the First lieutenant in the company, which I always found that fascinating too. That Company I, which Tom is in, the captain is all is is at home in New Jersey. He never comes back. He's on recruiting duty, but he never goes back to duty. So the company's in charge. Uh, the company's being led by a 19-year-old first lieutenant and a 17-year-old second lieutenant. And I, I really wish that I could have found letters from the rank, from the rank and file. Um, what the men thought about being led by two teenagers. Um, that would really be an interesting thing to know, to find out how, how they respond to it. And I know he, Lieutenant Owl, wants to know as well. We're going to take another yeah. short break. Okay. We'll come back and talk more with James M. Sides, author of This Will Make a Man of Me, The Life and Letters of a Teenage Officer in the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention, if you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking tonight with James M. Sides, author of This Will Make a Man of Me, The Life and Letters of a Teenage Officer in the Civil War. That officer is Thomas Howell of the 3rd New Jersey, uh, who serves early, 1861-62, goes off to the Peninsula Campaign. Um, Jim, one thing that I was curious about was mail service in general. He writes a lot of letters. He gets a lot of yeah. letters. He's always writing, you know, I didn't get a letter or I did get a letter. I want another letter. Uh, it just struck me the mail service was pretty darn good. Yeah, it is pretty interesting that it seems like he writes, or someone at home will write a letter, and he'll get it within a couple of days. And it's like, wow, I, I mail a package, and sometimes it doesn't get there for a week. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like theirs is a little more, a little better than ours. It, it does seem that way. He and the things he writes about, and this this really humanizes the, the story. Um, you know, he, he writes about the things you expect. He tells some war stories, but he's also. Uh, he's interested in girls. He he, he says, yeah. "Remember me to this or that." Uh, uh, could could you tease out any particular relationships that we're forming here? Yeah, I thought that was, I thought that part was interesting, and I actually that part of the book. I think it's a paragraph or two somewhere in the in in the first part of the book um, where I talk about the the young ladies that he mentions. That actually was the last one of the last parts of the book that I added after. I had sent it off to the readers and, and gotten the comments back. I'm, I'm like, you know, I think I really want to talk a little bit about this because he talks about two young ladies who lived pretty close to him in Camden, and um, it seems that he is interested in them. I, I, I don't know anything more than that, if, if they were actually his girlfriends or not, but the one young lady, Gert, um, Gert Browning, who lived a couple houses from him in Camden, she apparently 
he found out through a letter was doing something that he didn't approve of. And then he starts writing to his sister that remember me to all of my young lady friends, except Gert. Um, <laughs> I don't want to be remembered to her. And it seems, I think I, I wrote in there somewhere that it seems that she did something too un, uh, something unladylike for this, this Christian gentleman, because I think that's really it sort of sums up how he sees himself as, you know, he lives, by this ideal where he is is to to live this virtuous life and and doesn't drink and doesn't smoke and is to you know be pious and 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 apparently she did something that he didn't approve of and and he didn't want to he didn't want to hear about her anymore um, but I, I I thought it was interesting I wrote I think at, actually I wrote at the end of that paragraph that as they get ready to go to campaign uh, on campaign. In Virginia, he writes to his mom, and he asks her to send him some handkerchiefs. So when he sees the ladies, he will appear to be more than so-so. Um, yeah, and he's he's like any typical, I think, teenage boy. He's interested in 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 girls, and and um, you know, I, I, but I don't have any evidence that any of them wrote to him. Now you mentioned he, he's, he's he, he is a very upright Christian gentleman in his own mm-hmm. uh, view, his own behavior. He doesn't drink, doesn't smoke. He comments on the officers who do. He doesn't swear. Um, I, I was charmed by the fact that uh, when he wants to say something harsh, he uses the word rats. Uh, he uses the word rats. Yeah, I thought that was funny too. That yeah, he he replaces curse words with the word rats. Yeah, we're going to give them rats. Uh, yeah. I'm going to start saying that myself now, I think. I like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, see your students have over. no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> no one will know, but uh, but it, it will work. Um, he, he's, uh, he has this you know, vision of himself as, as a crusading... Uh, you know, knight, um, you know, a chivalrous figure, I, I, I yeah. should say. Uh, his He's not in the war as a, uh, uh, for ideological reasons, but as you pointed out earlier uh, this evening, he does, his attitudes do begin to harden as he goes through and experiences some of the war. His views on toward the South in particular, uh, yeah. you know, you can see them change. Yeah, absolutely. When once they got on the peninsula, you could see, you could see his attitudes toward the South change. And and I think the first plantation that they came across, seeing the conditions of the slaves on the plantation, I think really bothered him. His his family was um, anti-slavery. I mentioned early in the book, um, his dad was part of the American Colonization Society or, or attached to the American Colonization Society. Um, and I think seeing slavery firsthand really bothered him. And, and then um, somewhere in that second part of the book, I talked about how they came across a body of a, um, a Union soldier, or he had heard a story of a Union soldier who had asked um, Southerners um, for quarter, and the Southern soldier shot him dead. And, and he said, um, um, what should we do with such an enemy or something like that? And he says, we should shoot them like dogs. And I think that that point there, he really started to, to really dislike Southerners. And, and, and I think in the prospect of having to stay in the South, should, should Richmond fall, I think somewhere later in in that month, he writes, they might have to go, um, 
they might have to stay in the South longer. And he doesn't like the South. He doesn't like the heat. Um, he doesn't like the dust. Um, and I think that really, you know, the, the whole environment in the South really bothered him. Not that South Jersey's any better. I think our weather is <laughs> pretty humid here. But he does not care for the uh, uh, yeah the, the topography or or the the people that he's doing battle with. Although he doesn't actually see them until uh, he has a few glimpses of of, of Confederate yeah. soldiers here and there. Uh, but when we get to the the uh, climactic battle in in his story, uh, the battle at Gaines mm-hmm. Mill. He does describe uh, as the seven days fighting begins. Of course, they don't know it's going to be seven days. Uh, right. But he, he can hear the fighting. He can hear cannon. His unit has moved up near the front. Uh, and at, at Gaines Mill, you know, listeners can all pull out their maps of the seven days and be reminded that's when McClellan's army is divided by the Chickahominy River. And mm-hmm. uh, the third New Jersey is... is part of the, the main body of the army that's on the south side of the river and Porter's Corps is being attacked uh, in detail on the north side. But the 3rd New Jersey's brigade is sent uh, as part of the relief to try to bail Porter out. Uh, so yeah, what, Henry's what local did, whole division was sent to bail, to bail Porter out. So so what, what role does his unit play in the battle? So um, in the middle of the afternoon... Um, Porter sends for Slocum's division, which was three brigades, um, Taylor's brigade, um, the 1st New Jersey brigade was, was um, the second brigade to cross the Chickahominy. Uh, they arrived on the battlefield, I think somewhere probably between four and five. Um, and by this point, Porter's just trying to plug up holes, so he divides uh, the New Jersey Brigade into pieces. The 1st and 3rd New Jersey go into the middle of the battle. Uh, the 4th New Jersey is taken um, uh, by a member of McClellan's staff, and, and they're used to plug up another hole. Um, I think only four companies of the 2nd New Jersey was, was on the battlefield, so they stayed in the rear um, with some of the other units from Porter's Corps. So the 1st and 3rd New Jersey move into the woods, um, they're along Boson Swamp, and um, uh, General Taylor moved in um, with them, and the fighting was was pretty ferocious. Um, they were attacked a number of times by the Confederates. They repulsed all of the attacks. Um, the, the the descriptions of the battle that I that I read um, from some of the men who survived the battle were 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 pretty telling. They they talk about how um, smoky it was, how um, I, I quoted in the book one guy who talked about how you couldn't tell um, Confederate and Union wounded because they rolled down into the swamp, so everyone looked alike. They were just all muddy, and and, and everyone had powder on their face and, and, and were, were sweating. And eventually, um, Confederates move into this little lane that ran parallel to uh, the right flank of the third New Jersey, and they just poured this uh, inflating fire into uh, into their line, and and they broke um, somewhere around seven ish, seven o'clock, a little after seven o'clock in, at night. But they 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 held out for a couple hours there in the middle, and and uh, they're in the center of the line, and and were running out of ammunition, and and t- it took uh, quite a few casualties. 
um, and then finally broke. And I, I mentioned that one of the companies, um, one of the sergeants said that when they got out of the woods, they had taken 68 men into the woods. And I think he said there were only four, I think something like that, four men uh, when they came out of the woods um, left in his company. So um, they, were pretty, they were pretty shattered there in the center of the line. The uh, in all that fighting, Tom goes unscathed, and uh, he's with the regiment as they they are rallied and reorganized, and they're getting ready to cross uh, back to the south side of the Chickahominy River with the other Union troops, uh, and and rejoin the main body of McClellan's army. And that's where, as as it says on on the back of the book. Uh, with with nothing else going on, the fighting's over for the day, and here comes a random cannonball, uh, and it says he was struck in the abdomen by a cannonball and nearly torn in two. Uh, the, the the wastefulness the, the of of this fine young man being killed in this random fashion after the battle has long been decided, uh, it, it was just shocking. Yeah, it is shocking, and and. Just to, to back up one second, as as they come out of the woods, as they're pushed out of the woods, and they are, they're pushed back to the Chickahominy, um, I was really interested to find an article in the New York News in one of the New York newspapers talking about what an instrumental role that Tom played in rallying the soldiers. Mm. Um, the the correspondent says that he rallied part of Company H. There are a number of times he mentions in his letters how. He was in command of Company H, sometimes for, for different details, for different duties. Um, so these men um, were, were um, pretty familiar with him, and he rallied men from Company H, um, and, and they formed the, the nucleus of, of, of the regiment to, to regain order as before they crossed the, the uh, Chickahominy. So I think, you know, at that moment, he, he got what he wanted. He got that, that satisfaction that, he was now accepted by the men. They saw him as a leader. They saw him as this, you know, this man that, that, that was brave, stood with them in battle, and they're willing to stand with him again and, and have him rally them. And, and then a few minutes later, like you said, he's, he's hit with this random shot. They're, it's dark by this point. The Confederates are just blindly firing in the night trying to blow up the bridge. And the cannonball strikes him in his abdomen and, and tears him in half and uh, Dr. Welling, who was the doctor, he was the assistant surgeon of 3rd New Jersey, um, comes up to him, sees that he's, you know, in, basically in half, um, is trying to find someone to help put Tom's body on some, something to carry him across the river. No one will help him. So he was the one who took the uh, prayer book from Tom's uh, pocket and the epaulets from his uniform and sent those home to his family, which our historical society has now. Supposedly, something I read from the family, his sash was also sent home. But my thought is the sash had to have been completely oh my goodness. full of blood. <laughs> um, no. Tom's, Tom's name is on the family, tombs, uh, the family uh, tombstone in Camden. So I, I said in, in a footnote in the book, Possibly the family buried, if the sash came home, maybe they buried the sash since mm-hmm. they never got his body. Um, but I can't, I can't confirm that. I, I don't know if they did or not. But it's unfortunate. I, I, I reread the book um, 
this week as I prepared to talk to you and, and yeah, I get to that part of the book and, and, and it, it is, it's such a waste. One of my students read the book last semester. She took it out of the library at, at the university and, and, um, because, you know, spoil, there's, I'd say in the book that he dies. So she knew he was going to die and she came to me. It was shortly before final. She's like, I'm in the last part of the book now. I know he's going to die. She's like, I don't really want to read this chapter. She's like, I like him. I don't want him to die. Well, so, that, that's, I think that's a reaction many readers will have. Uh, one does come to like this young man, and you don't want him to die. Uh, I also don't want the show to end, but unfortunately, we are out of time, and uh, we'll have to close up here. But listeners, if you want to follow the story of uh, the very young but idealistic and uh, and, and quite intriguing Thomas Howell. Uh, you can read his story called This Will Make a Man of Me, The Life and Letters of a Teenage Officer in the Civil War. It's by our guest tonight, James M. Sides. Jim, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank, thank you so much, Jerry. I really appreciate it, and I'll see you in Gettysburg. I look forward to that. And listeners, thank you, as always, for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.